Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 123. On this episode, we're talking about reading and reflecting on the classics with Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor. Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor is research professor of English and Christianity and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, and she's the host of the podcast Jane and Jesus, which you should all check out, and the editor of the series that we're discussing today, which provides critical introductions to classic texts called Guides for Reading and Reflecting, published by B&H. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Amber Bowen, Dr. Josh Carroll, Stephanie K. Judd, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So Amber, Josh, and Stephanie, what did you all make of our conversation with Dr. Pryor? One of the things I appreciate about this conversation that we just had is thinking about reading the classics today in our present context, especially the, this digital age that we live in, thinking about how those can have a, an important formative effect on us. I just love Dr. Pryor's passion for the classic texts and bringing them to to life into this in in this day and age especially the aesthetic value of holding a a book in your hands and it was just really interesting talking to her about the revival that she's seeing and has seen and hopes to see more and more when it comes to classical literature uh, especially in the next generations coming up something that i thought was an interesting part of this conversation was her exploration of how literature differs from other forms of biographical example so it's not just history it's not just these stories of people's lives it's the unique thing about literature is that we get multiple perspectives and so we have to it, it requires us as the reader to inhabit a different perspective from one that we might ordinarily gravitate towards and she speaks about the way that that's so needed in the current fracturing of of our the social fabric um, and how literature can actually off- offer us a really important corrective to our echo chambers and our polarization. Um, and it was actually a, quite a hopeful, a hopeful message, which I thought was really encouraging. And with that, here's our conversation with Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor. Well, Dr. Pryor, it's so wonderful to have you back again on the podcast with us. It's great to be with you again. So we're really excited to talk about your guide to reading and reflecting series. And uh, you just had a couple of new books come out in that series. Could you tell us a little bit about why you've done these critical introductions and why you've picked the books that you've done and what's kind of the main purpose behind this? Well, the series consists of six volumes of classics that I picked that we have um, reproduced, printed in beautiful cloth-bound volumes with heavyweight paper and beautiful font and even a ribbon uh, bookmarker. So the books themselves are beautiful. Uh, A lot of classics are in the public domain. So when you go on places like Amazon, you can find so many copies of them that are cheap and terrible. Sometimes they're just photocopied copies printed in someone's basement. You have to be really careful um, because anyone can can publish them because they are in the public domain. So we chose books that I know and love and have taught for years that are in the public domain, but that allows us, uh, my publisher, um, B&H, to 
create them the way we, we wanted to in these beautiful hard cloth volumes. And then we included uh, in the, along with the text, um, introductions that I wrote giving background to the to the author, to the work, um, themes to look for in the book and why the book is significant. And without any spoilers, if you buy a classic from Penguin or Oxford, and I love those books, I use them all the time, but they often include critical reception that reveals the great spoilers of the plot. And so for so many readers who are reading these works for the first time, um, the delight is in discovering what happens. So um, I have introductions that help readers just sort of know why the work is important, what to look for, no spoilers, and then discussion questions um, strewn throughout the book that readers can just interact with on their own um, or use in a book club. So um, I just wanted to introduce or even reintroduce some of the books that I love most to um, readers who maybe didn't get to ha have the chance to have me in class. Well, I received uh, your latest two books that, that just came out. And the first thing that I noticed when I opened the box was how beautiful the books themselves are. And it's just not something that you find today. Even if you do purchase a, a, a regular paper book, you know, not a digital ebook, uh, they don't have that same kind of aesthetic, like, I just want to hold this thing, mm -hmm. you know? And I'm wondering if you, if that was intentional, if there's something about the materiality of the book and why you chose uh, the way that it looks, the way that it feels, the way it holds, um, if there's something significant about that in just the literary experience, and I think particularly in like a digital age, right, where you're almost always reading ebooks or just on your computer. Um, yeah, what's the materiality significance here? Well, that was very intentional. I mean, from the beginning, this project was not just about um, reproducing classic works of literature, but specifically creating um, volumes that are lovely to look at and to hold. Uh, because again, there are so many cheap editions of uh, all of these classics out there that one can get anywhere. And also even not just the beauty of them, um, because you can't really separate form and content, but even, you know, they are a larger size. So there's a heft to them, but also the larger font makes them much more readable. Um, I'm used to reading academic books and the print is very tiny and you have to squint and it's hard to see. Um, but what these books, the font is so readable that it just helps you read better. I think um, with wider margins, I, I specifically wanted wide margins and a lot of space so people could write in them. Although I know a lot of people think it's sacrilegious to write in a book. I encourage it. Uh, and so this was part of the project from the beginning to create um, beautiful copies of these beautiful books. Karen, can I just jump in there? Because I think that that ties in with that idea of what it is to read well, that you, you know, that you hold out in your book on reading well I haven't read any of the the new classics editions but I've read on reading well and I loved it I thought it was not only beautifully written but actually quite I found it quite moving um quite inspiring something I loved about it was that you made this defense at the very beginning about reading slowly and as a slow reader I felt really vindicated and really vindicated by that so part of the reason for this idea about reading slowly is that you're, you're kind of unpacking the idea that there is this utility in reading well in the context of character formation. And I just wanted to unpack a little bit about that because that seems to be the kind of the runway into this 
series of these books of great literature, something that you observe is that there's that deep reading requires attentiveness. I wonder if that's part of the large font idea and that attentiveness requires patience and that you and you situate that kind of endeavor of reading well in contrast against this online environment where we're kind of hyperlinked to oblivion we're never finishing a thought where we're linking off before we finish any ideas and that lends itself to a certain kind of thinking and so returning to this kind of measured long form you know digesting ideas slowly something I was reflecting on was that is reading well just reading slowly or what are some of the features that is it just about pace or are that what are some of the other features because I think that there are other features that you un, you unpack in that book on reading well about what it is to read well so I wondered if you could just share with our listeners about that yeah so many good observations you make there and, and good questions so I would say that reading slowly and attentively is the, the beginning of reading well um but it's not the entirety. I mean, because you can, you know, read slowly and still not, uh, you know, really read for for depth and for meaning. Um, and as you pointed out, it's there's so much of what we do in life today is hurried and fast and utilitarian. So what I want to say about reading applies to so many other things too. And and there are are people talking about these things, things like, you know, the slow food movement, you know, eating slowly, um, doing everything slowly, and not just because slowness in itself is good, but because of the attentiveness and the care that go along with that. And so um, to read well, I, I talk about reading slowly, because we live in a culture um, in which we, most of us read a lot, whether it's an email or Twitter or Facebook or instruction manuals or whatever it is, we're, we're reading a lot of things, but we read them very, very quickly. Um, and so it's actually takes intention and it takes practice and it takes sort of a conscientious effort to stop and slow down and read slowly because word literary words are doing something different than, um, words that are just for our information um, and use are doing. So it's, it's almost like, um, you know, it's the difference between paint on a wall and paint that creates a painting. Um, they're very, very different things, the same medium, but um, they're doing different things. And so reading well begins with slow reading and, and attentiveness, but it also includes like just sort of reflection, asking questions, letting the words sit with you, thinking about the perspective that's being portrayed, um, not, not, not just accepting it, but questioning it too. Um, you know, I'm, a famous example that I like to, to point to is, is Elizabeth Bennett in Pride and Prejudice, who's a character everyone loves and wants to be like and admires. And yet, um, Austin kind of tricks us into thinking we're as smart and insightful um, and uh, perceptive as Elizabeth. And it turns out, you know, she's very mistaken, which means we're mistaken too. Um, and so if we go along for that ride that the words give us, then we're learning something about not just the characters and that world, but we're learning something about ourselves too. And that's what it means to read well. And, and that's, um, that's an idea that you riff on, this idea of cultivating your moral imagination as, as you kind of inhabit the characters, try on their world a little bit for yourself. And I was just rereading all the Jane Austens in January and I found myself 
wondering, well, what would I do if I was Anne Elliot? How would I react? You know, those kinds of questions. Something that I've been wondering is that in literature, you, you see these examples of people's lives that are lived um, and, and you kind of look to them for an example to emulate or, or, or to reject. So that, that kind of that contrast. How is that different from works of history, for example? So you, you, in biography, you get the same kind of effect. And that's something that, you know, in, in David Brooks' book, The Road to Character, he kind of uses a similar pattern to yours in that he kind of um, pairs someone's, uh, you know, someone from history with a, a virtue, um, whether it be Eisenhower and self-restraint, I think it was, um, and, and goes from there. How does, how does that differ? So a work of history or even Anne Snyder's book where she goes into like very particular technical examples of um, community renewal, institutional renewal through an example. How is that example different? How is the content different from the form, I guess is what I'm asking. How does the, the form of literature bear upon us in a particular way that differs from history or from other things, for example? That is an utterly brilliant question and no one has ever asked it before. So I'm going to give my um, first draft of a response. Um, but I love the question and I actually think it's a really important one um, because, you know, they are different genres and um, they do use language in different ways. And I think that a lot of people who are readers, um, especially, you know, in my context, which is like, Christian, you know, Christianity, theologians, philosophers, and so forth. A lot of my people read a lot, but they read primarily theology, philosophy, history, biography, and so forth. And I like those things too. But the difference between a biography and a work of literature is that a biography has a narrator. Um, the biographer is the narrator. And that narrator could, um, the na narrator could aim for as objective point of view as possible, or as, you know, uh, a, a positive uh, view as possible, depending on the subject or a negative one, depending on the narrator's view of the subject. We know most historians and biographers aim for as much objectivity as they can, but not necessarily. But there's sort of a singular point of view from the narrator slash biographer. And we can want to read that critically, of course, but a narrator of a literary work does all kinds of crazy things, whether that's a first person narrator or a third person omniscient or limited point of view narrator, all of those things that you want to use. And again, I'll keep going back to Pride and Prejudice. It's such a, a one of the best books in the world and a good example for a lot of things. But when the book opens with this line, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man with a fortune must be in want of a wife or uh, whatever that line is. That is not Jane Austen giving her point of view, it's not even Elizabeth Bennett's point of view. It is most representative of Mrs. Bennett's point of view, as well as all of the women uh, and mothers who might be in a situation like hers, the societal point of view about um, what they wish were true of all single wealthy men. Um, it's the literary term is, uh, is um, free and direct discourse, which means that the words are giving a particular point of view that is indirect. It's not the, it's not the 
author's point of view. It's not even the narrator's point of view. It's someone else's. And so to read a work like that, um, and, and the, it varies from work to work, of course, but in all of Jane Austen, to read something like that, you have to constantly figure out whose point of view is being portrayed through these words because the, it slips all the time and shifts back and forth. Um, a good biographer isn't going to do that because that's not what a biography is for. So reading a literary work requires a whole set of interpretive and hermeneutical skills um, that just aren't required when reading something that's straightforward. Could I uh, jump on that just a little bit? Uh, last time we had you on, you had recommended a couple of, of works by uh, Marianne Wolf um, after after um, we recorded. And I, I, I went and read her Prost and the Squid and um, Reader Come Home, and I really appreciated them. And, and she talked a lot about how, you know, um, the reading brain is in jeopardy. We may lose the reading brain. And describing the um, benefits of reading, you know, growth and empathy, like these sorts of things. And, and, and virtue, of course, you know, um, that, that you develop. And I, I kept thinking, I feel like there's room to talk about film and television in this way, too. I know that for a lot of people, we can shut off our minds and kind of passively consume that medium. But, but I also think there's a place for a certain kind of attentive, reflective posture towards film and television. It's certainly something that I try to cultivate and, and um, want to promote. And I'm curious what you would say about, similar to how you just responded to Stephanie, um, some, some thoughts about the relationship between literature and film slash television in their ability to cultivate these virtues and, and empathy and these sorts of things, and, and, and maybe how you see literature as being distinct in this regard. Hmm. That's a great question. So, I mean, I love great film too. And I think, you know, on one level, um, we can certainly say that both film and literature require us or, or, or ask us anyway. I mean, we have to accept the invitation. They ask us to interpret and they ask us to find the meaning and then better films and better works of literature ask more of us and, and, you know, are, are a little bit more nuanced and complicated. And so we can find very variations, you know, various levels of, of that request in literature, just as we can in film. Um, so I would say that they definitely share that in common and film, film just does that in different ways. It uses, you know, music and script and camera angles and color and lots of different things at its disposal that, that literature doesn't have, which just has words. Um, so those are things that are, are similar. I would say, and, and you'd have to, there's, you know, the, go turn to other scholars that, that um, study this more than I do, but um, our brains do respond differently to images, um, to pictures, to sound, to music than we do to not just spoken words, but which that's another category itself, but written words, because we're written words are literally symbols, you know, letters, you know, a letter doesn't mean anything. It's just a black mark on a page unless we know what the letter is and the letter doesn't mean anything unless we know what the word means. And so reading itself is a, is a more mediated experience. We, it, it inherently requires more interpretation because the letters and words themselves are symbols. Um, so 
but art, I mean, but we can still put this in the category. We can put literature and film in the broader category of art, which is an aesthetic experience that requires a kind of intellectual response, but that intellectual response can never be separated from the aesthetic experience of our body as we see or hear um, and respond through the, you know, through our heartbeat or the coursing of our blood or the intake of our breath or the tear in our eye. All of those things are part of, of a profound aesthetic experience. You know, I was talking with some of my students in the past couple of weeks about, well, actually I, I was asking them, what are their plans for the summer and are they planning on reading any good books? Um, and, or have they read any good books this past semester just for fun, right? I had almost no hands raised mm. in a class of like 60 students. <laughs> um, and then I said, okay, well, what about TV sh uh, shows or films? Has there been a film that you've seen recently that, that you loved? And almost no, I mean, a little bit more, but shockingly, it was shockingly quiet. Um, and, and what they kind of talked about was, they, there's a lot of TikTok. There's a lot of YouTubing. There's these kind of quick experiences that, you know, at this point, our attention is, is so short lived that we can't even really sit through the plot of a film, you know? Um, and I was doing some research on, um, this phenomenon that they're calling media multitasking where, it, you know, and we know, we all know what this is it's like scrolling Instagram while you're watching a movie. And then you're also texting and then flipping back and forth. And there's some fascinating neurological and psychological studies on the adverse effects of media multitasking on the brain. Um, and how like one study is saying that we're giving ourselves attention deficit disorder. Um, and that it's actually the worst way for us to learn. And it's the worst way for us. It actually increases social anxiety um, and, and, and depression and other, sort, other sorts of, um, of just general like social and, um, and psychological struggles. Um, and so I'm wondering, because I'm looking at these books and these really thick books <laughs> that you're offering to the world at this time, right? Um, this very digital multitask kind of age. And how, how would you recommend kind of selling this to the students mm -hmm. to say, this is actually what you need like this. You're going to, you're going to find a kind of healing and a kind of integration that comes through like submitting yourself to this, even though it's going to take some like muscle building mm -hmm. to do this. Like, how do you interact with students mm -hmm. with that? That's such a good question. And the first thing I would say to your students and I do say to mine is um, it's not just you. It's not just them. Like I feel the effects of this as well. If I've got 20 minutes between, you know, this thing and the next thing, I'm not picking up a book. I'm scrolling Twitter. I mean, to my shame, this is what, what I'm doing because, because it, 20 minutes for me with a book now, that's, I'm just getting warmed up. Right. I mean, because my brain has changed and my attention span has, has changed. And believe me, I know because I, you know, I I'm old and I lived for a long, long time before these things were available. I know how my brain worked when all I could do in my spare time was like read, um, because there was nothing else to do. Um, so, so this is a, this phenomenon is real. It's for all of us. Um, and I would also 
you know, I, I have to remind myself of this when I get anxious about these facts um, that, you know, Plato um, was concerned about uh, the technology of writing um, long ago because he, you know, he saw that it would change uh, our memory, um, that we would lose our capacity to remember things, which is actually true. I mean, a literate society is very different in many ways from a pre-literate society. So anytime we have a technology and writing, writing itself is an alphabet is a technology. Um, we, we have to um, do what Marshall McLuhan urged us to do in, in, uh, you know, his famous work, Understanding Media. We have to think not just about what we gain, but also what we lose. Um, and so with social media, we do and, and digital media, we gain a lot. We have lots of information, lots of connections. Uh, when we get anxious, we can just Google to find out what, you know, how we alleviate our anxiety <laughs> that we got from being on the internet too long. Um, so what I would say about reading is recognize that the struggle is real, recognize our memories and our attention spans and all these things have changed and recognize that, that you want to counteract that. And so you have to just sort of be intentional, set time aside and realize that it might be harder than it was last year or two years ago, um, but be intentional, set the time aside and, um, and you know, whether it's, you know, a half hour a day or 20 minutes a day or maybe an hour a day or just certain times of the year. I mean, I don't blame students for, for not reading other things during the semester. Um, it can be hard. I, I used to do that myself when I was on a different schedule. I'd only read for fun during breaks. Um, but again, it's about being intentional and recognizing that the struggle is real, but also like any other kind of muscle or practice, we get better at it the more we do it. Can I ask a follow-up question to that? Because I, I come from like a legal politics kind of background and good character in our political context is scarce. And that's true in a lot of Western democracies at the moment. And that's partly why I kind of went on this bender reading all these books on character because it's like how do we how do we redress this widespread and longstanding problem? And it's it's probably just reframing Amber's question, which is that you know a lot of these people in politics, you know, they they are sleeping four hours a night, they're living at an insane pace. They're barely having time to feed themselves properly, let alone read. So I'm wondering how do these, because in, in, in your book on reading where you talk about there's not just the, the lessons from these, these pieces of literature, but also the perspectives um, that we learn from, how do we, how do we get those, those character renewing qualities to infiltrate and permeate and bear upon our political life, or is it is it something that you need to address upstream? So you get you get them at the you know the students, and then and then that can kind of trickle down. What what are your thoughts on on the way that literature can save save us from our political states? Wow, that's a that's a a big question and uh, for a big problem. Um, you know, I I guess I think um, I. You know, I, I, we look at human history and we see it's a like a pendulum swing from one extreme to another. I do think that that the next generations, the younger generations now, um, who you know are digital natives and grew up in this world, um, I do think that they are going to um, 
swing the pendulum the other way in many respects. I don't, I don't see our current like politicians and leaders doing this. It's, it was too late for most of them. But I, I think that um, those who grew up as digital natives will see better the limitations. They're, they'll be less fascinated with it and um, feel the effects more. And I think, um, and I think that's why there is, you know, I'm seeing a resurgence of interest in, in literature and reading um, and art. And so that gives me hope. Um, but I, I think implicit in your question, I mean, the idea that this kind of reading can uh, and does form character, the kind of character we need in, in our leaders. I mean, I think that's a given. And I think that we don't have it. And I don't see us getting it. I mean, I, you know, one of the former leaders in the United States, um, you know, famously, like never read books, right. Um, and uh, maybe that represents the peak of the of the pendulum. Uh, and uh, we'll see that That's swing the other way. <laughs> I'd like to ask about that resurgence you're talking about, we kind of see it in different forms, especially in like Gen Z, like my kids, some of that stuff just coming back, but it's coming back in strange forms, like it's come back in you know, renditions of movies, uh, like Pride and Prejudice, Zombie Edition, all that kind of different stuff. What do you see with all of that kind of stuff and the resurgence? And are, are people coming back to the classics because they're looking for something more solid, more endearing? I, I do think so. I mean, it, I you know, it's only anecdotal, but for example, and, and of course, this is not even that long ago, but I do remember at the beginning of the pandemic, um, people, you know, our brains were so overtaxed and anxious over everything that was going on. And, and so, some people found it difficult to do something like read a classic work of literature because of that, but other people at least wanted to. I mean, so the the sales of classic literature, classic works of literature went up. Uh, there are a few reports like that. Now, whether people were reading them or not, that's a different story, but I'm seeing um, a lot of desire to, to read uh, and, and not just from two years ago. I mean, um, I, you know, when I wrote um, my first book, which was a literary memoir 10 years ago now, I was in a place I remember where I just, I thought that um, being a Christian and being kind of in, in the church world, I thought I was an anomaly. I thought I would never meet fellow Christians um, outside of English majors who were interested in literature and um, understood the value of reading. And I was making kind of an appeal to read literature 10 years ago. And now here we are in a place where, you know, the, the publishing arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, my denomination, has invested in this series of literature. I mean, they, they publish Sunday school material um, and now they're publishing classic works of literature, you know, and so, and people are, buying it. Um, and so that's anecdotal, but I really do see a hunger for um, the things that are more lasting, that are more durable, and even just have some materiality, as we talked about before, in this sort of ephemeral digital context. Um, and maybe that's just the pendulum swinging, but if it is, that that's, that's how we exist as human beings. And um, I'm here for that pendulum swing. <laughs> Somebody made a, a fake cover of a, of a book with your introduction to Harry Potter, and uh, it was posted on Twitter, and that got me a little too excited. I was disappointed when I found out it was fake. 
I didn't actually know it was fake. I was looking for it. <laughs> well, I, this goes back a couple of, of comments on that. I mean, of course, that's not in the public domain, so I wouldn't have permission to republish that. I mean, of course, I could do a guide without the text, but this series includes the text. Um, and that's also just, yeah, I, that was just a lovely little late April Fool's joke. Um, one other point I wanted to say about young people, though, that I forgot is that um, I would say about seven years ago, five, maybe no, probably seven when ebooks started really making it big for about a couple of years and teaching my English majors, I had to require that they buy the actual physical book. I wouldn't allow e-readers, um, but just because I'm mean. Um, but, uh, and, but that was only for a couple of years after a couple of years, I didn't, they didn't want them. Um, I didn't even, we did, it didn't even come up. They wanted the physical books. They knew, I mean, these are readers, they're English majors. So um, they're a different breed, but, but they just were already done with the e-readers. They, they knew that they wanted to have that, that physical book in their hands, even if it was just, you know, the cheap paperback edition, it's a different kind of experience. So I think that's part of that, also part of that pendulum swing I was talking about. Well, I know that you're also working on another book project right now, and I wonder if you could maybe give us a little preview of what you're working on or what you're thinking about. And then in connection with this conversation, with this series of books, how do you see maybe this series unfolding into that, informing that, or maybe this series being like a good um, accompaniment to that? Yes. Thank you for asking me about my new book, which is, um, you know, the, the title hasn't been decided yet, but it basically will be a book. Um, about what I'm calling the evangelical social imaginary. Um, so it's drawing from Charles Taylor's theory of the social imaginary, uh, which just taught where he talks about the way our, our culture and our subcultures are formed by images, ideas, and metaphors that are often at the precognitive level. Like we just don't even realize that we're being driven and shaped um, by these ideas. And evangelicalism as a movement has been around for 300 years. And guess what? We have these kinds of ideas and metaphors and images that drive us and shape us. And so I'll be exploring what I identify as some of the central components of the evangelical social imaginary things like conversionism and testimony and domesticity and empire. Um, and I'll be tracing um, those ideas through literature and art and pop culture and just trying to help people see how um, we have been formed by these ideas for good and bad. I mean, I, I believe in conversion. <laughs> um, I think it's central to the Christian life. It's the beginning of Christian life. And yet having an emphasis on that um, leads to sometimes to some excesses. So in that way, um, this book, as it focuses on excesses of good ideas and deficiencies of others, ties to the virtues that I explored in on reading well. And it also connects to like all uh, of literature because I, because literature does develop not only our individual imaginations, but our social imaginary. What's your, what's your thoughts on digital mediums like audiobooks and podcasts? Uh, it seems like we're constantly driving, moving, and if we're not listening to music, people have podcasts, which is great because we're a podcast, and I know you have a podcast also. It's always rolling in our heads, though. Something is always tuning out the world, and sometimes it's, those, uh, it's that medium instead of music. How do we reflect thoughtfully 
while we're while we're partaking in that? That is a really good question. And um, I have a complicated relationship with a lot of these different forms. I do do um, host a podcast. Uh, I never thought I would. I never wanted to, but I was convinced and I'm, I'm glad that I did. Um, but I don't listen to a lot of podcasts. Um, I'm starting to, but I, I do listen to audiobooks. And I think for me, and this is, you know, I, we're, this is a new, I mean, where we are right now in the digital age is similar to where the 17th century was with the invention of the printing press. So we're all figuring this out. So what I'm going to say are my observations, but the, you know, the, 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 the um, ju- ultimate judge will be a hundred or 200 years from now down in history when they look back and figure out what was going on in this moment. But um, I, I want artfully constructed words um, or music. So I don't listen to, so, so I listen to audiobooks because they are just the reading of the written word. Um, and the few podcasts that I do listen to tend to be more edited and constructed and, and artful, um, or I'm just listening to them you know, for information, because I need to, you know, I want to find out what news they're reporting or what issue they're, they're analyzing. Um, and, but that, that's partly because of the own, the balance in my own life. My life is filled with words. And so I just can't listen to words all day long. I have to have time and space to reflect on my own thoughts and words. And so I, I think, I think we are in, in this moment um, that was similar to the beginning of print culture in the 17th century. And now we're in, in this digital age and it will you know, remain to the historians to figure out what the effects were and how the world changed uh, because of all of these different formats that are available to us, the good and the bad. I, I was laughing too, because uh, we have a, an Oculus Quest, right? Which is the VR version. And now they're having PDF readers and they're having interactive books. Uh, a lot of that is coming out too to get, which is kind of a different resurgence where you're in a virtual world reading a virtual book and flipping virtual pages. So the aesthetic is there in, in, a, in a really different way from the physically holding a book. But as technology grows, that might I have never cool. even heard of these things. So I'm just trying mm-hmm. to picture them. So. Yeah, it's the thing where you have on your face and, and stuff oh. in your hands. And yeah, it's very, wow. it's very interesting. <laughs> There's a French philosopher named Michel Henri who would call that barbarism, where you reduce the world to the virtual display. <laughs> he calls it barbarism. Like it guts the inner life and the materiality out of our world. It's actually like an increasingly relevant analysis that's totally an aside. But I, I'm kind of wondering, Karen, if you could tell us about the two releases that just came out, why you chose them, why you chose them to come out together. Um, I, I don't know if there's a method behind that, or if there was some kind of intentionality with that. I know that like Soren Kierkegaard did the same thing. He would release texts, two texts at the same time. And that was significant for how to read those texts. You're supposed to read them together basically. Um, so yeah, why these two at this time? And then going back to your topic about um, the social imaginary, particularly among evangelicals, how do you see these texts maybe contributing to that in, in a helpful way? Well, I am no Kierkegaard, um, so there isn't a, that kind of a method to releasing the two at a time. I mean, essentially, um, the six-volume series that I was contracted for, I knew my pace would be um, to be able to complete two a year with my teaching um, responsibilities. So then 
I just wanted to figure out kind of like, well, I had to figure out which six I wanted to do and then which two to do together. And I did want there to be sort of some complementarian um, relationships between the two that I would, that, that would come out together. Um, so the first two, for example, uh, were Sense and Sensibility by Jane Austen and Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad. And I really wanted those two to balance each other out. I didn't want when I was introducing the series, I didn't want people to think that, oh, the series is going to be just for um, women to read girly books like those by Jane Austen. No, that's not what the series is about at all. So I was kind of sending a message um, that this is going to be, you know, uh, a, a series that is representative of a, a lot of different writers and, and themes, you know, within my own expertise, which is British literature of the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, so the two that just released are, um, a Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne, which is not British, it's American, it's my, my token American book, and Tessa the D'Urbervilles by Thomas Hardy. And, you know, it's interesting because I think I knew in the back of my mind, but really didn't understand until I was deep in the work on both of these, that um, they are both um, centered on themes of sexual assault and clergy sexual abuse. Uh, which is something that the church at large is reckoning with right now, uh, including my own denomination. And so I have long loved Tess of the D'Urbervilles. It has been one of my favorite books for decades, and I teach it often. I love it. I, I knew I wanted to include that in the series. And um, The Scarlet Letter was one I was kind of returning to after ha not having read it for probably at least 20 years. And I saw in it um, things that I just, you know, didn't see before, which is, which is common when returning to a book, but I felt that both of them are critical of Christianity and skeptical of Christianity, yet both of them have much to teach us if we will listen to that sort of outside critical eye because they convey so much truth. And so I thought that they really worked well together to, to be released together. One of, you know, writ written a couple of decades apart, but of course Hawthorne's is set a couple of hundred years earlier. Hardy's really deals with an issue that was, um, you know, really a problem during the Victorian era that he grew up in and yet continues to be a problem. And, um, and the current book that I'm working on, which is on the evangelical social imaginary, actually is kind of an expansion of something I've had to say over and over in, in my classes when I teach Victorian literature, is that when we read Victorian literature, we often recognize the tropes and ideas and images and values and metaphors that are common within evangelicalism today, but they aren't biblical as much as they are. Victorian. Our, our social imaginary has been formed so much by cultural ideas, more so than you know, the timeless truths of the Bible. I love that you, you're presenting these two texts in that way and in, in that context. I, I think about this with um, philosophers like Freud and Nietzsche and Mark, you know, the masters of suspicion. And um, I, I say this a lot to my students that instead of our, our hackles being raised, you know, when we hear these names, like these are these enemies of the faith. And then the, our first impulse should be to refute them and to give them no voice, you know, but instead that Meryl Westfall says that sometimes our enemies can tell us the truth about ourselves a lot more clear and better than even our friends. And so to receive sort of the critique of religion in order to make way for better religion, 
um, is, is this great process. And so I, I think that's, it sounds like that's what you're hoping for these books to do, to have that kind of kind of prophetic critical voice that actually has a renewing uh, impact in our social imaginary. Absolutely. It is such a gift. I mean, even, even when our critics um, have, don't have good intentions or, you know, or are in bad faith, we can learn so much from them. I mean, I, I think I, I know I try to apply this in my personal life when I receive criticism or even trolling on social media. I mean, you know, I, I don't let myself get over, try not to get overly distracted by it, but I actually do consider like if, if someone received what I'm saying or doing this way, is there something that I can do to, to correct that misperception? If, if it is a misperception or maybe I am wrong. I mean, this is like, this is something we should all be trying to do in our personal lives. And the church certainly can do with the, with these critics who, who are, are brilliant and prophetic um, and are holding up a mirror to us so that we can see kind of what the back of our head looks like, you know, because we're, we're looking one in one direction and we can't see that just like when we go to get our hair done and someone holds, you know, the stylist holds up the, the mirror so we can see the back that we can't see. That's, that's what these wonderful thinkers, um, novelists, philosophers um, are doing for us if we'll receive it. I guess one question that I have is in terms of looking forward and not just back to these great works. I'd love to know from you who is writing at the moment that you think captures this kind of work of, you know, characters who who we can look to or, or stories that compel us to be brighter versions of ourselves. Who's who's writing at the moment? Who are you reading at the moment that you think, oh, this is this is gold? One of my favorite contemporary authors. Um, who's really proven himself and continues to prove himself that I think offers us so much as George Saunders. Um, he is, you know, he's a professor, uh, a writing teacher, um, a novelist, but primarily um, a short story writer. And what George Saunders does, um, he comes from, he comes from a Catholic background, but is essentially, I think, Buddhist or Buddhist adjacent right now. Um, and so certainly, you know, he is not coming from or embracing um, a Christian or biblical worldview. And yet what he does so well, that is such a gift to all of us, is that he shows how to inhabit the voice and experience and perspective of people very unlike himself, to try to understand and empathize with characters very unlike himself. And I think that is what most of us in this polarized, divided world uh, need is the ability to empathize and understand others' perspectives, even if, you know, we don't or can't adopt them. So I think he is going to be come, go down in history as one of the greats. Well, Dr. Pryor, thank you so much for joining us again. We appreciate all of your insights about the classics and the work that you're doing and for promoting the importance of reading uh, culturally, societally, and, and individually in our own personal growth. We just really appreciate having you on with us. Thanks so much for having me. It was a joy. 